Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And on this last full day of summer, the autumnal equinox is going to be at 2.50 in the morning, and we turn our attention to fall. We ready? Okay. Fall, so school is back. UMass is back. The legislature is back. People are back to work. We have with us Max Page, who is the president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association, and Lisa Geisbond, who is the executive director of Citizens for Public Schools. We'll be talking about MCAS and what is happening with high-stakes testing in our schools in just a minute. But first, Max Page, president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association. There was a really important hearing in Boston at the legislature. Now, as Buzz points out, everyone's back to work. This past Monday, the chair of the committee hearing, or, or uh, in charge of the hearing, uh, was Joe Comerford, and the hearing was on the Cherish Act. Let's start there. What happened? Okay, Bill. So the Cherish Act is the uh, is our and the Mass Teachers Association our blueprint for debt-free, high-quality public higher education. And the chief Senate sponsor for a couple of different sessions has been Joe Comerford, who, starting this past year has become the chair, well, the, the Senate chair of the Joint Committee on Public Higher Education. And I will say Mindy Dom, our rep from Amherst, is also on that committee, as is Rep Pat Duffy from Holyoke. So Western Mass is well represented on this important committee. And they heard testimony for about six hours um, on this Cherish Act. And I have to say they were, I mean, I've been in this fight for many, many years, and incredibly moving um, testimonies from classified staff from students, from alumni, from faculty, about why we need to guarantee debt-free public higher education and why we need to invest in the quality of our institutions um, all across our, the state. Okay, six hours of hearings. Is the bill going to get to the floor? That's the real question out of these hearings. Is it going to be advanced to the legislature for its consideration of the entire body, and will it go with a favorable recommendation? Well, listen, a lot of people think the hearing is kind of the last step. It's actually the first step. So we've had our now public hearing. Every bill that moves forward has to have a public hearing. We had a great public hearing. There were 200 people there in their blue, um, you know, higher ed for all T-shirts. Now begins the efforts to make sure it comes out of committee positively and gets to the floor. That's the work of the next six months. And we are planning on having events all across uh, the 29 campuses and really getting the 108 sponsors in the legislature to to uh, you know really push this forward. And note, 108 out of two, 200 is, this humanities guy knows that that's more than 50%. So we have a majority of the legislature that has backed the Cherish Act. So I think when with, especially with Senator Comerford's leadership and Rep Dom and Rep Duffy and many, many others, uh, for Western Mass, I should say Jake Oliveira, Senator Oliveira is very much involved with this, Senator Mark, Lots of key people are really supportive of this, so we feel a lot of hope that this central racial and economic justice um, goal will be achieved. You said there were 108 co-sponsors. Are the 108 all from the House, or does that include the Senate co-sponsors? No, as no, well? that's so majority in both houses have endorsed this bill. Wow. So you're yeah, so that's good. not trying to put words in your mouth, but here I go. You're optimistic? I am optim more optimistic than I've ever been before. Um, the legislature works in mysterious ways, as, um, and so you, you never know exactly what's going to happen, but I feel more optimism than ever before. We, partly because what I said there is at the hearing, I said, we provided you with the money, meaning we, meaning MTA members, allies all across the state, won the fair share amendment, 
the, the millionaire's tax, which specifically names funding um, public higher education. So we've put the money before the legislature. They've started good investments, and now is the time to really make this a guarantee going forward. Okay. Uh, Final question on this topic, Max. What's the next step publicly? What should we in the public be looking for? Well, you should be looking for um, lots of local events that are happening. We're trying to have something on every campus, but bringing in K-12 allies as well as higher education because most of our young people, when they graduate from Massachusetts high school, go to a public college or university in Massachusetts. So we're hoping to have lots of events, lots of things being written in the press to really keep the the drumbeat going that this needs to happen this year. And if the bill is passed by the legislature, the governor's going to sign it? I suspect she would. She's been obviously putting a lot of support behind public higher education. She pioneered uh, laid down this mass reconnect program, which is, you know, a sort of a tuition and free for community colleges for people over 25. So there is a commitment um, in the right direction. We just got to make sure we get a final bill that is is does what it needs to do. Let's go to a different topic and bring into this conversation Lisa Geisbond, who is the executive director of Citizens for Public Schools. You brought Lisa with us, with you and to us this morning, Max. Tell us why and what's the topic you want her to highlight for us. Great. Yes. Thank you, Bill. And Lisa, welcome today to the to the show. Thank you. Lisa Geisbond is the head of Citizens for Public Schools, one of the main statewide advocacy groups for public education going back many decades behind some of the key lawsuits and legislation that have advanced public education in the state. So what I want to talk about is Lisa and I sat next to each other um, at the Board of Elementary and Secondary Education, and we're kind of like... Passing notes back and forth? On board. <laughs> What's that? Passing notes back and forth. Well, whispering in fervent anger because of the way the presentation was being made about the history of MCAS and the meaning of the current scores and their plans for the future. So I really want to have give Lisa a chance to first, like, what was what was your impression? This was a meeting in which they announced what the new the, the latest scores were, but also um, they sort of told a history um, of the MCAS, which I think was really problematic. So tell us first your first impression and what was what was most disturbing to you? Yeah, well, it was a lot of spinning, I felt, of the data and and sort of manipulating the data and the history to paint this very you know, overwhelmingly positive picture of uh, the state's MCAS-driven assessment and accountability system, um, you know, graduation rates going up, dropout rates going down, um, you know, everybody kind of improving and, uh, you know, the, the uh, graduation requirement use of the MCAS being a positive thing and, you know, the more, the higher your scores, the more money you're going to make the rest of your life. And, but it just seemed manipulative, especially regarding uh, this promotion of the use of the graduation requirement and kind of uh, obscuring, you know, like by not disaggregating, for example, graduation rate data, obscuring the fact that Massachusetts has among the biggest gaps in graduation rates between 
different groups, for example, between typical students and students with disabilities or uh, white students and uh, Latino students, you know, we're really, the disparities have always been huge and they remain huge and relatively large compared to other states. And still we're sticking with this sort of antiquated policy of denying students uh, access to high school diplomas based on a standardized test score. Lisa Geisbaum, could you go back just one second, re- refresh uh, my memory? This is a hearing when and where about what? Oh, this was the monthly meeting of the State Board of Elementary and Secondary Education. And a lot of time at this month's meeting was devoted to uh, the release of the MCAS scores from this past spring. But also they they did this sort of historic overview of, you know, the decades of the MCAS and then a separate kind of pitch for how wonderful the use of the MCAS as a graduation requirement is. And does this hearing mean that the Board of Elementary and Secondary Education is going to come out in opposition to the ballot question to not require MCAS as a graduation requirement, a lot of double negatives going on in there, but that's, <laughs> but, but that said, is, is that what they want to say? We really want MCAS. We're going to make sure people take MCAS, and if they can't pass it, they don't get a high school diploma. If they sort of thrown down the gauntlet, is that what this was about? Well, interestingly, uh, Rob Curtin, who uh, works for the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education, and he's kind of like the head of MCAS, um, he said nothing he said was uh, a statement of opinion. I can't remember exactly the words he used, but he wasn't like coming out in favor of or against any legislation or ballot question. But one of the appointed members of the board, the vice chair, Matt Hills, his presentation seemed to be a pitch for keeping the graduation requirement and against um, the ballot question. I'm going to say a little more bluntly. Um, he, as soon as Rob Curtin said that, I knew that the rest of the presentation and the rest of the day would be a campaign event against the ballot initiative that the MTA and CPS and many others have put forward to end the graduation requirement. It was a pretty naked attempt to have a political campaign event by but calling it a board board meeting because the entire presentation was designed to be um, oppositional. But here's the thing, Lisa Geisbond, head of the Citizens for Public Schools. What was fun, what was what we found as we were whispering back and forth in that room was that much of what they showed on the screen undermined their very argument. And I'd like to I'm going to have to do a description of a graph, Bill. It's not very hard. The greatest (laughs) increase in scores on the MCAS across all groups happened in the years before there was a graduation requirement. Before there was a, it is from 1993 all the way up into the, up till 2003, there was that there was, the graduation requirement itself did nothing. If if anything, we started to see a decline um, in scores um, in that period. So they have a graph up there that seems to prove their argument why MCAS is so important. In fact, the best improvements happened before there was any graduation requirement. We're, in other words, we're trying to get back to that dime, that time when there maybe there was a test. We have to have a test. It's diagnostic, but does not have the high stakes implications. I was well, stunned by that. 
Yeah, that's a great point. I'll just add to that, that there was sort of a natural experiment during the pandemic when they suspended the graduation requirement because the pandemic disrupted both education and administration of the MCAS. So there were three graduating classes that were not required to pass the MCAS and that period, and they didn't identify that in their charts, you know, that that pause, but there that was a big increase in the graduation rate during that pause, and especially for the groups of students that struggle the most in school, English learners, students with disabilities, uh, saw the greatest increase. So it was sort of a, a natural experiment that the pandemic forced a pause in the requirement and the graduation incre rate increased, but they didn't mention that. Indeed, let, let me lift up something else um, that very quickly is that they ignore the fact, I mean, very blatantly, um, kind of stunningly, failed to note um, that MCAS is very closely tied to income levels. This is what we've known for years. Kids with higher scores generally are wealthier. But then they went on for a long time to say MCAS scores correlate with lifetime income. Well, guess what? If you start wealthy, you usually end wealthy. <laughs> and so it was just a, it was, I call it, um, you know, lying with social science or, or, or pretend social science. So they had these graphs to show, guess what? Kids who started wealthier um, end up wealthier, but they never named that. So they made it sound as if the MCAS itself was driving um, young people's better, um, you know, incomes later on in life. Um, so, Lisa Geisbond, what is the next steps in lift up quickly in a minute or so the Thrive Act hearing, which is connected to this, the effort that you've been working on for so many years? So what is that? So there's uh, we have the Thrive Bill that we're really excited about, and it has several different pieces to it. One, but they all kind of go at the so-called high stakes uses of the MCAS in the state. So one piece of it would be ending the state receivership policy, which uses MCAS scores to decide what districts the state can take over and remove local democratic control of the schools. That's been a big failure in the in the districts where it's been implemented. And then another piece of it would make it so kids could graduate based on their performance in school, their completion of local requirements, doing all the coursework, passing all the Tech tests they take in class, but not having to pass the standardized MCAS exams like most of the rest of the states in the country already do. And then there'd be a commission to look into better ways to assess student learning and school quality. So there's a hearing by the Joint Education Committee on Wednesday, October 4th in the afternoon, starting at 2 p.m. And um, it's going to be a big uh, attendance. We encourage people to participate either in person or there's a virtual option. We have some great speakers lined up and um, really going to make the case for it's time for a change. Uh, one of our CPS board members said, how many years, how many decades do we have to uh, wait before we acknowledge the failure and the harms caused by the current system? I have one last question for you both since we have another minute or so. Uh, 
do you expect the state to wage a major opposition, wage major opposition to this ballot initiative, which says, no, MCAS should be an assessment tool. MCAS should be used to help students. MCAS can be useful. But MCAS as a graduation requirement is an utter failure. That's your position. Is the state going to come out and say, no, we love MCAS and look at all the great things it's done, which is, I think, a, a utter, utter misrepresentation. But is this a precursor for how the next year is going to play out? I'll just quickly say, and Lisa, you offer your thoughts, that the governor has been very clear that she wants to take a hard look at high stakes testing. And I think the, the new secretary of education, a real educator, Patrick Tutwiler, is interested in that. We believe that the, the weight of evidence will show that this this has been a destructive system, this high stakes testing system, and that they will want to make some major changes. We want to make sure they make the right the right changes. Lisa, your final thoughts? Yeah, we have a new uh, governor, a new administration, a new secretary of education. Uh, the old governor, yeah, he would have really tried to <laughs> cut cut our legs out from under us, but I think we we do have some change. And again, it's really time. It's really time. And many people um, have acknowledged that if you go out and talk to people when we're going out and get to talk about the ballot question that would end the graduation requirement. But it's like the easiest ask I've ever done when you ask people to sign a petition to get a question on the ballot and the graduation requirement. They're like, give me that. I'm signing it. We have been speaking with Lisa Geisbond, who is the executive director of Citizens for Public Schools, and Max Page, the president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association. Thank you both for all you're doing. We really appreciate your time, insights, and expertise that you shared with us this today. Thank you Thanks, so Bell. much. All the feeling that I you don't know how many times I've wished that I had told you You don't know how many times I've wished that I could hold you You don't know how many times I've wished that I could mold you Into someone who could cherish me as much as I This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg Emotions and experiences play an important role in our financial decision-making. Every Saturday morning, hear real-life stories and positive solutions to issues we all face when it comes to our relationship with money. Financial Fitness with the Money Doctor, Francis Rayum, Saturday mornings at 8.30 on 101.5, 1400 WHMP. Hello, this is Mother Nature speaking. Well, speaking through me. You can just let everything slide until next spring, but I'm not going to be happy. I know you're busy. We're all busy. That's why you call Beyond Landscape. They cut back the perennials, deadhead the flowers, clean up the leaves and compost them. Maybe the lawn needs feeding or the beds need weaning. Oh, you'll get to it? Oh, really? Listen to your mother. Take back your weekend. Call Beyond Landscape. Book a fall cleanup. Are you tired of feeling like a watchless hero in a world full of timekeeping villains? Fear not. 
Hero Watch Repair is here to save the day. With over 20 years of experience and a heroic five-star customer rating, Hero Watch is the ultimate superhero of watch repair and customization in the Valley. These heroes possess the power to buy, fix, sell, and customize watches like no other. They'll swoop in, rescue your timepiece, and restore it to its former glory. Call Avery at Hero Watch Repair, East Hampton. Local farms are the lifeblood of our valley, and boy have they had a tough year. At Northeast Solar, we feel a deep connection to farms. Sustainable agriculture needs sustainable energy, and sustainable energy is our mission. Energy is often the single highest cost for a working farm. By reducing those costs with solar energy, farms can sustain their business, which helps them sustain our communities. Support our local farms. Learn more about Northeast Solar's work with local farms at northeast-solar.com farms. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. MTA President Max Page just mentioned that Representative Mindy Dom was one of the persons, one of the legislators promoting the Cherish Act, and we are going to be speaking with Representative Mindy Dom about that, as well as a bill she is sponsoring with regard to medical parole, and importantly, front page of today's Republican Top of the Fold, a lot of money, $100 million plus for East-West Rail, Plus, the Women's women's History Trail, so much to speak with Representative Mindy Dom about, which we will do right after this. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The conversation over a new four-way intersection near the old Tasty Top on Route 10 in East Hampton is continuing. The developer, who's planning a multi-million dollar housing and retail complex, has secured an agreement to buy two lots opposite the project, according to the Gazette, to help control traffic by installing the four-way intersection. The planning board will vote on the proposed development after reviewing all data and relevant public comments submitted to date. There has been some opposition to the project by property owners and environmentalists. Frequent passenger rail service between Springfield and Boston is one step closer to becoming a reality thanks to a big chunk of federal funding. The U.S. Department of Transportation is providing $108 million to pay for track improvements along 53 miles of railroad between Springfield and Worcester. Amtrak and the freight rail company CSX will receive the funds as part of the Federal Railroad Administration's Safety Improvement Program. Greenfield Community College has a new program on the way after receiving a grant from the state. They're developing an HVAC training program as part of an $18 million grant from the Massachusetts Clean Energy Center, focused on creating an equitable clean energy workforce. And Greenfield Mayor Roxanne Wiedegardner now has the endorsement of Governor Maura Healey and Lieutenant Governor Kim Driscoll in her run for re-election as mayor, one of only a handful of endorsements the administration is making in municipal elections. Lieutenant Governor Driscoll said Mayor Wiedegardner is a critical partner in moving Massachusetts forward as one of the municipal candidates in line with their vision for the state. For today, look for sunshine with increasing clouds this afternoon, high 70 to 74. Tonight, it'll be mostly cloudy, overnight lows 50 to 54. And the outlook for Saturday, rainy, breezy, and cool, highs in the lower 60s. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Adam Stremko on 101.5 WHMP. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Rutabagas, sweet potatoes, turnips, and leeks. Local produce is rooting its way to the co-op every day. At the co-op meat counter, try coffee-rubbed hanger steak, a delicious mix of sweet and bold heat. 
new recipe, and you need just a pinch of this herb or that spice, get just the right amount in the co-op's bulk department. River Valley Co-op. Wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Doing business in Amherst since 1968. Woman-owned since 2017. Summerlin Floors does it all. Hardwood, carpet, porcelain tile, natural stone. Have you considered radiant floor heating? We're sales. We're design. We're installation. Our team at Summerlin Floors has been in the flooring business for over 50 years. People are pleasantly refreshed by the experience they get here compared to some of the, we'll say, bigger options in town. The bedazzling Deerfield Fall Arts and Crafts Festival returns to the beautiful village of Deerfield, September 23rd and 24th. Brighten your home or wardrobe. Choose from stunning yet affordable works by over 100 artisans, including a wonderful trove of gold and silver jewelry. But don't just take my word for it. Get the details at deerfield-craft.org. Celebrate a bright new fall season. Admission $5, children 12 and under free. You could be one word away from $1,000. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Listen each weekday for the $1,000 keyword at around 815, 1215, and 415. When you hear the keyword, just go to WHMP.com and enter it for a shot at $1,000. You have until midnight to enter the keyword of the day. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Complete rules and details on WHMP.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We welcome back to the show Representative Mindy Dom. Mindy Dom is the representative for the 3rd Hampshire District. Remind our listeners, if you would, please, Representative Dom, your district includes which towns? It includes the entire town of Amherst and half of the town of Granby. Okay, so much to ask you about today. So we are really, really pleased that you can be with us. Let's start with what was top of the fold. Buzz has a question for you. Yeah, in your capacity as co-chair of the Joint Committee on Tourism and other things, there's a $108 million grant for rail infrastructure upgrades, and uh, you have long been an advocate of East-West Rail, so I'm wondering what the impact of that grant is and what that money is going to be used for, and does that pave the way, so to speak, for future rail service? Great pun. Um, good morning. I love the fact that this um, money is coming into the area. I believe, although I'll find out also more information this morning, but I believe this is a planning grant um, for East West West East Rail. And so in order for us to really sort of leverage more money from the feds as well as from the state, we're going to need to have some hard and fast plans that show accurate cost estimates, um, options, strategies, um, you know, there were two different routes being proposed by the delegation. One is a northern route. One is a southern route. This one is, I believe, for the southern route, which goes from Boston, Worcester, Springfield, Pittsfield. Um, the northern route, which is also being championed, goes extends the Fitchburg line to Greenfield and North Adams. I am a supporter of both. Which one do I want to go first? Whichever one gets the funding to go first. Um, and you're right, Buzz, this is great for tourism. It's great for tourism to bring people from out of the state into the state, just like we see with the Berkshire Flyer and the Valley Flyer. But it's also good to encourage visits from people within the state, get people from Boston to come out and visit Western Mass, fall in love with it, move here, live here, work here. If you had a guess on a timetable, what would be your guess? 
Oh, my goodness. I don't know. I think it's very subject to the politics of what's happening in Washington. Um, I hope within the next 10, 12 years, um, but I don't know. And I don't know how long actually it takes to build a railroad in the 21st century, but I would hope within the next 10, 12 years. We'll see. Because some of it is they have to actually build tracks. So it's not just, you know, use existing track and put new trains on it. It's also build track, build track in complicated um, geographic areas. But we'll see. I think we'll learn more this morning from the announcement of this um, funds. What they see is the timetable for spending these funds connected to the final project. Representative Dom, this is very dependent on federal money going forward, isn't it? It's not just a matter yes. of the state having the impetus and the, and the ability to, to plan it. It's going to require a huge amount of money from the federal government in order to build it. Is that right? Absolutely. I think that's why you're going to see people from Amtrak at this uh, public uh, press conference this morning, because it's not just MassDOT. They have a, actually a relatively small piece to this because I think we're really looking to connect it to the national sort of rail network. And rail should be a national commitment, right? Um, it's not just a state commitment. We ought to be making this commitment in many areas. And so you're absolutely right, Bill. This needs the federal partnership in a big way, which is why I'm hesitant to say how long it will take because I think the federal government plays such a big role. Representative Mindy Dom, we are facing within a week a possible government shutdown. Will that impact this $108 million grant? Um, I think everything gets impacted by this uh, by the federal shutdown, but I don't know the specifics of that. I think, actually, that's a great question for someone to ask Congressman Neal at the press conference this morning. I don't know if the funding has already come through and, it, and um, folks have it in hand, or they're announcing that it's about to come through. But if it hasn't come through yet, I'm sure it will be impacted by the shutdown. Rep. Dom, we were... the possible shutdown. Sorry. I appreciate that. I would like to turn, if I might, to another topic. We were just speaking with Lisa Geisbond, who is the executive director of the Citizens for Public School, of Citizens for Public Schools, and Max Page, president of the Massachusetts Teacher, Teachers Association, who told us about your important role in trying to promote and pass the Cherish Act. Want to spend a minute with us about that? Of course. Yes, the Cherish Act, as you know, had their hearing this past week and was chaired by the Joint Committee on Higher Education, which I'm honored to be sitting on. That committee is chaired by Northampton's own Senator Joe Comerford and also um, a representative from the eastern part of the state, Dave Rogers. And though I was, um, had another hearing that morning for the committee that I chair, I was able to get to the Cherish um, hearing. And I was so impressed, first of all, with the amount of people who participated in it from the Valley especially from Amherst and from the University of Massachusetts in Amherst. We had students, administrators, faculty, adjunct faculty, all testifying to the need for more affordable um, higher ed and more resources to public higher ed. Um, it was just fabulous to be able to see so many constituents. I don't usually speak in these hearings. I like to listen because it's a hearing. That means I should be listening. But I had to actually thank each constituent for coming, and so I ended up speaking quite a bit because there were so many constituents. The students were unbelievably articulate about the impact of resources, what additional resources would have on their life, and also the impact of what the depletion of resources has had on their lives and their futures. It was extremely moving, and I believe it was recorded, so people could probably watch it on the Mass Legislature website 
which is www.malegislature.gov. Can you briefly describe, half a minute, what the CHERISH Act will accomplish if it passes and when the governor signs it, hopefully? Yeah, but I think actually the, the advocates are probably better at this than me. Well, for the first one is it, it commits to significant resources so that we can, in fact, make sure that um, students are not leaving public higher ed with significant debt. But it also combines other kinds of approaches to relieving um, the affordability crisis. So more money for buildings so that student fees are not being raised to be able to accommodate buildings. It also has a whole section around adjuncts and treating adjuncts more uh, fairly and funding them and giving them a little bit more reliability. There were several people who testified who are residents of the 3rd Hampshire District and are adjunct professors at a variety of institutions in the Valley and in Western Massachusetts. And to hear what they're doing, you know, they have like, they hold down like three or four jobs. They take on loads of about eight courses a semester, and they don't even find out what their load is until the semester begins. It's um, really unfair and not humane. Um, and they're filling in these significant gaps that higher ed has on faculty, and they should be treated you know, better. And I believe the Cherish Act also goes um, and covers their fairness for them as well. Representative Dom, I'd like to move on to a, another legislative priority of yours, one that I really appreciate your undertaking. That is a bill to address the question of medical parole in Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. Help our listeners understand what that is, why it matters, and what is the rather insane kind of situation we now have in our Massachusetts prisons and jails with regard to old, infirm persons mm-hmm. who are in their final stage of life. Help us understand. Yeah, this is such an important issue. And, you know, so first of all, medical parole is a program that exists. It doesn't need to be created. It was created, I believe, in 2018. And basically it says that when people are coming to the end of their life and they've been incarcerated um, and they are facing terminal illness or um, they um, have intellectual disabilities, potentially from dementia or Alzheimer's, that they may be eligible for medical parole. And in order for them to get medical parole, they not only need a doctor to refer them to it, a doctor within the system, but they also need a place to be able to go. And so what they found was that there were a lot of barriers to people using medical parole, structural barriers. And so this legislation tries to identify and remove some of those barriers. And so one of those barriers might be that a person who is demented or is suffering from Alzheimer's would get a guardian to be able to you know, advocate for them, like something that you would just expect to be in place so that they wouldn't have to necessarily know how to, in fact, apply for medical parole because their dementia or Alzheimer's might be preventing them from knowing how to do that and actually implementing that, making sure that they have a guardian, um, making sure that people are, um, that their applications for medical parole are viewed um, like expeditiously. These are people who are looking at only weeks or months left to their life and don't have six months to two years to wait on a waiting list before they get, um, before their application gets reviewed. I have to really give credit here to the Prisoners Legal Services, which is an organization based in Boston. They are the brilliant and humane advocates for this legislation. And my co-filer on it, Senator Pat Jalen, has been a leader on medical parole issues. We had a press briefing on it, a legislative briefing on it in the State House last week, which was very moving. It included 
some people who are incarcerated who have been waiting for medical parole. We have a public hearing coming up where we will also have not only experts, but um, people who are incarcerated who are waiting speaking. Um, at the uh, legislative briefing last week, we had a family member of somebody who, whose, um, whose family member was a victim of somebody who's um, waiting for medical parole. And they asked the question, okay, I understand how this benefits the person who's in jail, but how does this benefit my family? And I'm so glad they got an opportunity to ask that question because I think the concern is always what's going to happen to family members who are expecting the perpetrators of crime to stay in jail. Um, does medical parole sort of compromise uh, their expectations? And in a way it does, but it also lives up to the expectation that jail is rehabilitative and people who are dying um, and that we know are dying or who are um, severely demented, perhaps jail is not the right place for them. And they also deserve a humane place um, to, to spend their last, last days. Um, that, and, uh, that is just such an important uh, uh, piece of proposed legislation, and we're so glad that you're doing it. We, we also wanted to ask you about, there is people, my wife and I are about to visit Seneca Falls in upstate New York <laughs> to look at Women's yeah. Rights National Historic Park and the trail. But there's an initiative. You, in your capacity, again, as co-chair of tourism, along with Senator Paul Mark here in Massachusetts, you've created a task force to try to do something in our state with respect to women's rights, national history. Could you tell us about that? Yes, thanks, Buzz. So I didn't create this. The legislature created it. Just, I mean, I was part of the voting for it, but I was not a leader in this because it preceded my um, being in that Massachusetts House of Representatives. But there was funding to put aside to create a women's rights history trail in Massachusetts. And this would be a trail that would actually celebrate locations, very site-specific, and the people who did things at those um, sites um, that advanced women's rights and women's suffrage in Massachusetts. And so right now we're holding listening sessions. Um, Senator Mark and I co-chair the task force that are overseeing this. We're holding public listening sessions to receive public suggestions on what should be included in the site. I'd like to give um, a website. Um, it's tinyurl, that's T-I-N-Y-U-R-L dot com slash W-R-H-T hyphen submission. And that, and or people can email me and ask. Um, and we want the public to participate in sending us what sites are in their communities that they believe furthered women's rights and women's suffrage and why. And we'd like to be able to consider that for the trail. Um, and this is a really important endeavor, and I hope the public uh, will participate. It doesn't have to be fancy sites. It can be um, a protest that happened on a street corner um, to make sure that women could vote. And there's no special monument there yet, um, but there's a corner that people remember that this um, happened. What you know? So please get the word out, and if folks want that website and they want to know how they can participate, they can certainly reach out to me. And Representative, um, I want to note... As you, as you have, the importance of this, not only as history, but as an economic driver for tourism in the western part of the state, which is going to be increasingly important in coming years and decades. We have been speaking, yes. we have been speaking with Representative Mindy Don from the 3rd Hampshire District. We really appreciate your time, your leadership, your insights. Thank you so very much, Representative Don. We really, really are in your debt. Thanks so much for having me. Have a great weekend, everybody.
You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Feed the birds naturally. Winesick Nursery has trees and plants that can feed backyard birds. Choose plants that produce berries like dogwood, service berries, cherries, and blueberries. These also attract caterpillars, the preferred food for baby birds during nesting season. Invite hummingbirds and butterflies to your yard with bergamot, red columbine, honeysuckle, clethra, and viburnum, just to name a few. Get plants, feeders, seed, and everything you need for the birds at Winesick Nursery, Route 9 in Hadley, and at winesicknursery.com. We are for the birds. Reading is one of life's great pleasures. Having a community bookstore makes it even better. Broadside Bookshop is a community-minded, woman-owned, independent bookstore in downtown Northampton, where you can browse to your heart's content. For book lovers, Broadside is home away from home. You can order virtually any book on the Broadside website and pick it up at the store or have it sent to your door. If you love books, you'll love Broadside Bookshop. 20 years ago, we envisioned creating a brighter future for people and planet. Now, PV Squared celebrates a big milestone. Two decades of designing, building, and maintaining quality solar projects for homes and businesses in our community. PV Squared is a worker-owned co-op. When you partner with us, you get a team dedicated to the success of your project, from your first meeting to servicing your system down the road. Build solar right and do business better. It's the co-op difference. Learn more at pvsquared.coop. You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts and messages from community nonprofits. The beat goes on. The beat goes on. This is Artbeat on Talk the Talk with Betsy Stone, who is in for Donna Belcasis, who has with her and us today, and we welcome back to the studio, this very special guest. The pleasure of the introduction is yours, Betsy Stone. My guest is April Gallant. She's a curator at Smith College Museum of Art, one of my favorite places in town. And April, I went to a, a curator's talk the other day. Uh, about a new exhibit, uh, which we'll talk about later. Um, but I just wanted to say, I'm really happy that Smith has free admission to the public now. It, that's a new development, right? Yeah. Yes, it is, Betsy. Actually, we are thrilled. This is something we've been wanting for a long time. Um, there was an admission charge for the general public at the museum, I think, since 2004. But recently, we've been given an endowment by two uh, alumna of Smith College, uh, Jan Fulgraf Golan, class of 1971, and Jane Timken, class of 64. So now the Smith College Museum of Art is free to everyone all the time, and we couldn't be happier. Oh, that's fantastic. I've always wished for that. And yeah. here it is. May I just so, ask, do you think that'll make a big change in the number of people who walk through the doors? I think it probably will. I mean, even though the for museum standards, the admission charge was nominal, it was $5 for adults, it still is a barrier for a lot of people. We did have um, free open hours, but it's not very welcoming to say some people are free and some people aren't. And so we really hope to welcome back um, as many people as possible. Yeah, there's nothing quite like free and open to the public 
at your discretion, come visit us. You are welcome here, I think, to really open up the doors. And the Smith College Museum of Art is a fabulous place. It is a wonderful experience. But I think that there is a psychological impediment when uh, you have to pay. Yeah, no, absolutely. And so um, I don't know if it had a hit on our attendance when the building reopened or when it was instituted, but certainly it's um, we're glad to be able to really truly welcome people to the museum. Yeah, and really, I think, express that notion and put into effect the idea art is for the people. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And you're doing uh, Second Fridays again. Yes, right? yes. Uh -huh. um, we are, we're past the pandemic, at least, um, in our minds. Um, and so we're going to be reopened for Second Fridays. So from 4 to 8, every Second Friday starting in October, um, we will be open late and also have art-making activities in the atrium. And I know a lot of people really enjoyed that in the past. So we're looking forward to welp welcoming people back. So the exhibit that I saw recently was called Some of Its Parts. And it's... Um, Works on paper, I believe, that are um, a multi-part, diptychs, triptychs, you know, even more parts than that. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I loved the, the walkthrough with you. And um, there were a couple of pieces that really struck me. Uh, one was called Future Under Climate Tyranny by Maggie Puckett. Yes. Can yes. we talk about that a bit? Absolutely. I remember that, an upside down map of the world. Yes, that is actually a favorite for classes and um, you know school groups and college classes alike. Um, it is a very large um, twelve piece map, twelve pieces of paper that are hung on the wall, as you said, in an upground. Um, oh, upside down or upside down from the way we're used to seeing right, the world. Right. And it's completely made of handmade paper, right. um, including uh, little bits of plastic where the plastic dumps are in the oceans, um, sand in the drier areas. And Maggie Par Puckett is an artist who lives in Chicago who does unique paperworks that are focused on um, climate issues. Mm -hmm. And so it's future under climate tyranny. And it was inspired by a map that she saw in New Scientist magazine in 2009, envisioning what the world would look like if um, the temperature rose by four degrees Celsius. And it's mm -hmm. pretty sobering to see it um, in 3D on the wall. Right. Um, and she made the map upside down to kind of get people to slow down and not just see the map as we just sort of see it, but really slow down and really look at how much things are going to change. And unfortunately, the predictions have gotten even worse. Right. And since then, actually, since 2011, the um, global temperatures have risen 1.48 degrees uh, Fahrenheit. Mm -hmm. Another um, uh, uh, piece that really struck me was con called Constructing Narratives by Emma Nishamura. Yes, yeah, that's a fantastic work, and I'm thrilled that we're able to get it on view. This will be the first time it's on view. And actually, the artist is going to be coming and doing a public lecture on October 26th in Graham Hall on the Smith College campus. So just if you can make it, please do. Um, what that is, um, it's a multi-part piece. I think it's 10 pieces. And it is showing um, sites in British Columbia that are related to the artist's um, family. Um, and actually, they are, uh, it's, it's the places where her grandparents lived and also where they were incarcerated during the Second World War. Um, Japanese Canadians in British Columbia were put into camps um, during the Second World War because the Canadian government feared that they would be traitors. Right. And... Um, and all of the lines and the um, bodies of water are made out of tiny, tiny etched words 
um, that are taken from historic documents. So it's a really compelling piece, and I hope people are able to come hear the artist and also come see the work and look really closely. The words are so tiny, you have to use a magnifying glass, and then you still can't read them. Yes, mm. yeah. It's, it's incredible to think how this artist managed physically to do that. I have no idea how she managed to do it, but we'll I'm, ask her when I'm she looking comes. forward to finding <laughs> yeah. out. Yeah. She's also going to be doing a print workshop. Um, so people are invited to drop into the print studios from October 25th through October 27th, Wednesday through Friday, and watch her at work. Amazing. And speaking of the print studios, you have the Cunningham Center, which is your center of works on paper. I call it works on paper, but it's yep. photographs, prints, drawings, drawings, mm -hmm. um, um, that is open to the public also, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. One of the reasons we um, organize the Some of Its Parts exhibition is that there are some works that you can't actually see when you come to the Cunningham Center um, because they're in multiple parts. But the Cunningham Center is open by appointment to anyone. You can just call up the museum and make an appointment. You can search our collection online, send us a list of things you'd like to see. You want to see our Rembrandt etchings? We would love to pull them out for you. Mm. So just send us an email, let us know what you want to see, and we would be happy to see you. Could, wow. you go, could you go back just yeah. one second? Did you just say if you want to see our Rembrandt sketches, just call <laughs> us up and we'll arrange that for you? Yes. Well, actually, Rembrandt etchings. Um, etchings. We don't have any drawings. But yeah, anything in the museum's collection, it is 80% um, works on paper. So prints, drawings, and photographs from the 15th century to the present day, all media, all cultures. We have a ton of stuff. And we really want people to be able to access it. And that's why we have a place like the Cunningham Center. It was recently renovated, and it is gorgeous. It sounds important. April Gallant, I'm always wondering whenever I go to that beautiful Smithy Museum, whether or not the art department has anything to do with curation. Like the two current exhibits, which Betsy was just talking to you about, that those pieces sound so powerful. Do students have input in what gets exhibited? Do faculty members participate in the curation at the museum? That's a great question, Buzz. Thanks for that. Um, we definitely involve students a lot in what we do. In fact, there's a number of students who actually uh, wrote labels for the installation. Um, and in one case, there was a great work by an artist named Andrea Chung that was proposed for purchase by a student. So we really involve students a lot in almost everything we do. Um, and, you know, faculty, of course, um, one of the reasons I think Emma Nishimura was invited for the print workshop is because we have a work by her and the work is on view. There's even an, um, uh, one room and uh, one gallery in the museum, check me if you still have it, uh, which is for student use. Uh, it's it's uh, professors put up work that they're using in their classes. I always find that interesting. Yeah. It doesn't hang together them thematically, but it's interesting to see what the students are looking at. Oh, absolutely. The teaching gallery, it's on yeah. the museum's lower level, and it rotates almost every week because there are, I think that this semester there are like 64 classes that are being booked to come into the museum. Some come to the Cunningham Center and see works on paper. Some are in the galleries. Um, some go to the teaching galleries. So there's a lot of really active traffic. We're speaking with April Gallant from Smith College Museum of Art. And I have another question for you. What's coming up at Smith? Museum of Art. Oh, gosh, there's so much. Um, so one special, other special thing that's happening is that on October 13th, there is going to be a, um, 
uh, screening and a discussion with Deborah Jack, who is an artist who is on view at the museum in our new media gallery. Um, in the spring, we have a really terrific exhibition coming up opening in February called Painting the Persian at World, Portable Images on Paper, Cloth, and Clay, which is being curated by my colleague Yao Wu, our curator of Asian art, in uh, cooperation with uh, Yale Rice, who teaches is arts of the Islamic world at Amherst College. And also, very excitingly, we're reinstalling our major collection gallery on the third floor. Um, right now it's closed, but we're working on a new integrated hang um, so that you'll see works from across time periods, across media. Um, it won't be chronological anymore, but we're really, really excited about that. Thank you so much, April. That was, we got a lot of information in. I hope people will come to the museum. I Thank hope so. You. Now free. Yes, now free to the public. Uh, thank you all for supporting the arts. And we thank you, Betsy Stone, who was the founding and first host of Art Beat. She is in today for Donabel Cassis, who brought back to our studio April Golan from the Smith College Museum of Art. So happy to have you back as well, April. Thank you both so very, very much. Thanks, Bill. How long and how hard would you work to own your own home? At Pioneer Valley Habitat for Humanity, future homeowners contribute dozens of hours to build a home for their family, but they need your help. Thousands of community supporters have participated in this work since 1989. They create a partnership with a future homeowner and Habitat to build a home, strengthen our neighborhoods, and create a legacy for our community. Grab a hammer, lend a hand, build a better world. Volunteer and support Pioneer Valley Habitat for Humanity, pvhabitat.org. Imagine working hard for so many years and reaching your retirement only to find out there's an issue with your pension or 401k. Unfortunately, it's a problem too many Americans face. The New England Pension Assistance Project can help you get the benefits you've earned by providing free legal help. Contact the New England Pension Assistance Project at 888-425-6067 or visit them online at pensionhelp.org slash newengland. A public service from the U.S. Administration on Aging's Pension Counseling and Information Program. WHMP Northampton. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to Talk the Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman. And we welcome back to our studio professor and attorney Harris Freeman, who is a professor of labor law, teaches at the Western New England University School of Law, and at Smith College and at the Labor Center at UMass. He was, in addition to be, being now an attorney who is specializes and specializes in teaching labor law, he was a worker on the Chrysler assembly line in Detroit. He was an assembly worker. No better person to have with us today to help us understand what is happening with the UAW strike in Detroit. Let me turn to you, Harris Freeman, our friend Harris Freeman, and ask you, what is this strike about, and is it likely to be successful? Well, first, thank you for having me uh, on the show. And it's the first time I've been on the show when you two have been a uh, dynamic duo here. So congratulations <laughs> on, your, on your work together on the show. I, I, I appreciate being, um, being asked to speak. Um, so, Bill, your question about uh, the the strike and whether it's likely to succeed, uh, I think, has to start by um, 
by placing it in the context that we find today, which is, first of all, an unprecedented level of support for unions generally, and I think for the kind of demands that the United Auto Workers Union is placing before the big three automakers. Uh, just yesterday, I was uh, standing uh, across the street from here over at Pulaski Park at a rally uh, that was organized by the Western Mass Area Labor Federation to support the uh, striking um, actors union. Bill, you were there. I didn't see it. See, it was so big, we didn't even see each other, man. That was a good sign. And, and the, the horns honking and the kind of sentiment you saw from people walking by and the, the attitude and militancy and confidence of these workers, I think, is indicative of the framework that this strike occurs in. And Harris, let me ask you this, uh, because you you are a member of a union. You're a member of Massachusetts Teachers Association, MSP at, at UMass. And you were a member of the United Auto Workers. And by the way, we should note for our listeners, Harris also was a, an appellate administrative law judge for the Commonwealth Employment uh, Employee Relations Board. Yes, it's it's the body that oversees public sector workers collective bargaining here in Massachusetts. So you have a lot of ex lot of experience. I, I want to read to you two sentences from today's story about the strike in the New York Times and get your reaction. One is state senator from from Michigan uh, named uh, Darren Cam Cam Camillera a Democrat whose district is home to several car manufacturing facilities, including a Ford plant where workers are striking, says it's not only about ensuring that these jobs are well paid, but making sure that more of these jobs are still right here. And later on in the article, it says this, quote, electric cars have fewer parts and can be made with fewer workers than vehicles with internal combustion engines, noting previously in the article, and that's the future. So what's your reaction to that dilemma? Well, I, I think one of the big concerns that auto workers, and I think all workers generally have today, is how to preserve good jobs, decent wages, and benefits in the face of rapidly changing uh, manufacturing modes and, and technology that's being used to uh, produce and drive cars and, 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 and elsewhere. This is, this is an issue even in the uh, actor strike where they're worried about the new technology of AI impacting their jobs. And one of the big demands of the United Auto Workers in this strike is for a shorter work week with no cut in pay, which would allow more people to be employed, making cars, and working in a way that is less stressful and more in tune with the kind of work-life balance that working people deserve. Um, and uh, I think that's one of the really important demands of this strike. I mean, when I worked uh, as an auto worker on the assembly line, 60-hour um, work weeks were pretty normal. And I've got to say, my, my job was um, making sure the door closed right on the cars. I had the passenger side. And I stood there every day, and I had about uh, 54 seconds to make sure those two doors closed right. Uh, and I did that for eight hours standing up. Um, you do that for 60 hours a week regularly. It takes a toll physically, mentally, on your family. 
and and you come to depend on the overtime for a base standard of living, which I think is absurd that you can't make a decent living anymore unless you're working crazy hours. It's the same kind of thing with Amazon workers. So what I think the auto workers strike represents in part is a recognition that this has to change. And I think they're putting forward realistic demands that have been on the table for a long time in, in the labor movement. That is a shorter work week with no reduction in pay. Spread the work around. We are more productive, and we deserve a greater share of our productivity. So my answer, I guess, to, to what this senator had to say is that we're seeing um, a proposal for what kind of work we need in the 21st century economy we're living in, and we're seeing um, tremendous pushback from employers on this to maintain what have been some pretty greedy level of profits and... Uh, and buybacks that have benefited only shareholders, not ordinary working people. And that was uh, the question I wanted to ask you, Professor Harris Freeman, which is there are record profits being made and the disproportionate amount of increase in management salaries relative to workers. Could you talk to us about that? Uh, yeah, I, I certainly can. Uh, w w one of the things that UAW President Sean Fain has spoken about with justifiable outrage is the fact that the GM CEO, Mary Barra, makes $29 million in a year. Previously a worker at GM, right? Uh, no. Oh, uh, that's what I thought. That's my uh, memory. Uh, I don't think she was a, a, a assembly line worker. She might have worked in, in, a, in a white-collar position. Um, at Stellantis, Carlos Tavares made $25 million, and at Ford, Jim Farley made $21 million. Um, and uh, we, we have seen over the last 10 years uh, a quarter of a trillion dollars in, in profits that the auto companies have made. And, and, and so what, what we're seeing here is an example of the way that the greater productivity that has occurred in recent years due to advances in technology and productivity has not inured to the benefit of ordinary folks in the United States. And, and so the strike is an effort to redivide the pie. A and I think to put before the American people and American working people the, the, the idea that, that this is a realistic and important uh, demand. This is not pie in the sky. This is what we need to, to recalibrate uh, the problem of, of, of gross inequities in the uh, economy today. And the other thing we all have to remember is during the financial meltdown in 08, Oh, 09, basically taxpayers bailed out. I, I don't remember which of the big three, but I think at least two of the big three were bailed out by TARP money, and uh, there were concessions made by labor at that time, right? Yeah, I think that's a really important historical framework to use to think about this, because part of what happened in, in the lead-up to the Great Recession was uh, billions of dollars in stock buybacks that companies like General Motors um, provided to their stockholders. Instead of taking that money and investing it in improving and uh, preparing for the next generation of auto production so that when the Great Recession hit, um, General Motors went into bankruptcy. And the bailout, as, as you're alluding to, uh, resulted in $11 billion in concessions from General Motors workers. Uh, which meant getting rid of retirement uh, health care. It got rid of pensions. 
and it brought into being a situation which is a big part of the UAW's fight right now, which is uh, creating a two-tiered or a multi-tiered workforce. So you have these an entire group of second-class workers who are starting at $16 an hour, often starting work uh, through temp agencies. Uh, and even when you get a full-time standard job at a company like GM or, or Stellantis or, um, or Ford, uh, it takes you eight years to work up to the standard pay rate. So as, as we've moved forward generationally, what we've seen is a large-scale uh, decline in the average wage of an auto worker, so that now auto workers are making 30% less than they were making 20 years ago. And if you add to the concessions uh, from workers, there was also $11 billion that the U.S. government provided to General Motors as part of this bailout. And now we're seeing unbelievable profits, even on the short term. I think it was $23 billion in, in, in the first half of, uh, of this year. The automakers, uh, GM, Ford, Stellantis, which is now the owner of Chrysler and uh, Jeep and some European car manufacturers as well, Stellantis, GM, and Ford, they make this argument. They say, look, if we have to pay those wages, which we'd happily do, but we have competition from non-union manufacturers in many places, including China, where they pay workers a fraction of what we pay. We have to compete with Tesla, which, is ma which manufactures its cars in China. And in the long run, you can talk about all of these dollars and numbers, but we will be unable to compete if we have to have to pay wages that are many, many times higher than what our competitors are paying their workers. What's your response to that? Well, my response has a number of different parts. First of all, um, this reflects an um, uh, overestimation of the part that wages are playing in the cost of cars. That's one piece to this. The second piece to this is companies like Tesla are not just manufacturing cars in China. They're manufacturing them right here. And we have over one million workers uh, in the auto industry that are non-union. It's not just uh, Tesla, it's also Honda, Volkswagen, um, Mercedes, and other companies. And there are more coming to the United States as a result of, uh, of, of the Inflation Reduction Act, which is providing huge tax incentives to build cars and batteries and other auto parts right here. Part of the question is uh, what I think Sean Fain has expressed uh, as his strategy as a new leader of, of the UAW, which is a much more aggressive campaign to organize the unorganized auto workers to remove wages from this kind of competition. Uh, and that's what unions are really doing. They're removing wages so that auto workers are not competing against one another in what will only be a race to the bottom if we do not, uh, as a labor movement, find a way to organize uh, large numbers of auto workers at these other already existing auto plants and at the new plants that are coming in as part of General Motors and Ford and, and Chrysler. We are speaking with Harris Freeman. He is a labor law expert, a professor of labor law at Western New England University School of Law. He also teaches at the UMass Labor Center. He is a former member of the CERB, the Commonwealth Employee, Employee Relations Board. That's the appellate board that oversees uh, public sector uh, work work 
in, in Massachusetts. Uh, also a former former member of the United Auto Workers. He worked on the assembly line in Detroit. And when we're going to come back, we're going to talk about unionization efforts in the auto industry, including unionizing Tesla workers here in the United States. We'll be right back. Was, was that him? This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Branford Marsalis is one of the most influential figures in contemporary music. He led the Tonight Show Band. He's played with Sting and the Grateful Dead. He's done Broadway, classical, but the center of Branford Marsalis' musical universe is the Branford Marsalis Quartet. He's bringing the quartet to UMass October 5th. From New Orleans' first family of jazz, Branford Marsalis, saxophonist, band leader, National Endowment for the Arts Jazz Master, three-time Grammy winner, bringing his quartet to the Frederick C. Tillis Performance Hall. This celebrated jazz ensemble is known for its fearless and uncompromising interpretations of a kaleidoscopic range of material, original compositions, jazz, and popular classics. Get tickets now at the UMass Fine Arts Center box office. An evening with Branford Marsalis and his quartet, Thursday, October 5th at UMass Amherst. Are you tired of feeling like a watchless hero in a world full of timekeeping villains? Fear not. Hero Watch Repair is here to save the day. With over 20 years of experience and a heroic five-star customer rating, Hero Watch is the ultimate superhero of watch repair and customization in the Valley. These heroes possess the power to buy, fix, sell, and customize watches like no other. They'll swoop in, rescue your timepiece, and restore it to its former glory. Call Avery at Hero Watch Repair, East Hampton. Franklin County has a vibrant history of farming. At the Franklin County House of Correction, we bring that history to life with education and vocational programs around farming and gardening. Incarcerated men and women learn to work in active organic garden. Best of all, they harvest, they send home to help support and feed their families. This is Sheriff Chris Donnellan, and I can't think of better therapy than farming and feeding your family. That's the history of Franklin County, and we honor it at the Sheriff's Office every day. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Harris Freeman, attorney and professor. Harris Freeman, professor of labor law and a former member of the Commonwealth Employment Relations Commission, board, CERB, CERB, board. board. And we are talking with him about the strike by the United Auto Workers against GM, Ford, and Stellantis. And we left off with the question of whether or not these car manufacturers will be able to compete, notwithstanding $30 million of salary for the CEO. Can they compete long-term if they have to go up against car manufacturers work, who are working in China, making their cars in China, and, well, don't have to worry about unions? Or, for that matter... 
decent conditions for their workers. Well, globalization has long been a, a, a factor that has resulted in higher rates of exploitation for workers all over the world, whether it be in China, Vietnam, Europe, or, or the United States. And the, the, the car companies um, uh, have done nothing to actually improve the conditions of work in Chinese auto factories. They, they have been complicit in the Chinese government's repression of, of organized labor uh, in, in that country. Um, the, the, these arguments th that um, companies cannot compete have been part and parcel of the employer's arguments against unions um, forever. Uh, the first unions that were formed in the city of Philadelphia in the early 1800s were, um, were criminalized because it was argued that they were going to undermine competitiveness and competition and destroy manufacturing in the United States. This just hasn't been true historically. Uh, unions and companies have bargained in ways that have improved wages, improved productivity uh, to, to allow auto companies like Chrysler, Ford, and GM to thrive and make billions in profits. What is really going on here is that the productivity that U.S. workers make is not put back into decent cost for cars and in decent wages for workers. Instead, you have record profits. We have fewer car sales and we have higher profits than ever because the auto companies are making decisions on where to sell cars and what kind of cars to sell that do not speak to the consumer needs of a lot of working people. You gotta buy a new car today, and what does it cost you? Thirty-five, forty thousand dollars or more. How many working people are in a position to afford that? That is not about the wages of, of the workers. Yeah, well, we're a long way from when Henry Ford said, I'm gonna create a manufacturing uh, paradigm which allows the workers to, on the line, creating and building the cars to buy the cars. Well, that's right. And what, what brought uh, Ford's dream into reality was the fact that he ultimately had to concede to the unionization of his workforce, which is what resulted in what we now call somewhat of a misnomer, America's middle class, that is decent pay and work conditions for working class Americans. It was the UAW that really altered the paradigm of um, what allowed American workers to buy into what we call the American dream, which is right now kind of a nightmare for most working people. And that, that is the perfect segue for what I want to ask you. I want to just circle back to what you said at the beginning of our discussion, which is that there's unprecedented levels of support for labor and collective bargaining manifesting these days. And you know we have this UAW strike, the Writers Guild, the Actors uh, Support, of that and local organizing by Barnes and Noble and mm -hmm. Michaels and Trader Joe's right here in Hadley. We hear about UPS, Starbucks, Comcast, even Amazon. So is there in fact a resurgence of collective bargaining and labor in the United States? Well, I think there's certainly been an uptick in efforts to organize unions across various sectors of the economy. Um, retail, uh, warehousing and logistics, uh, are, are notable um, areas, but there's also been an uptick in uh, collective action by teachers. I know that uh, the president of my union, Max Page, is a, a frequent 
um, uh, guest on your show. And the teachers in Massachusetts have resorted to uh, civil disobedience in, in, in the tradition of folks like Dr. King and the tradition of the old sit-down strikes to really alter um, the relationship between teachers, the community, and uh, the municipalities in which they work to the advantage of teachers and students. Uh, we're seeing a big uptick. Um, where this is going to go, I know this goes back to the question you started with, Bill, is this strike going to be victorious? Um, I, I am not a, a prophet, and I don't have a, uh, a way to answer that. But I think that there's a level of determination and a level of solidarity uh, and support for unions that we haven't seen in a long time that bodes well for the outcome of the UAW strike. I want to ask uh, both of you to answer this. Bill, I asked Bill about this on the air the other day uh, in the context of the Writers Guild strike, which is, uh, could you explain to us what a failure to bargain in good faith is? We keep hearing about, in the Writers Guild situation, these multi-gazillionaire studios and uh, and the like, streaming services, they, they sit down at the table and say, oh, we're offering what we offered you yesterday, right? Same thing. And, and we hear there's a little bit of progress, but not major progress in, in the UAW effort to uh, have meaningful negotiations. Um, let me start with you, Professor Harris Freeman. What is the obligation to bargain in good faith? Where does it begin and where does it end so we can make sense of what we're seeing? Well, that's a really hard question to answer because the duty of good faith bargaining uh, depends on both parties really uh, deep down in their hearts trying to um, reach an agreement that moves the needle forward for, in particular, the demands of, of working people. And our system uh, requires people to talk, but it doesn't require them to reach an agreement no matter how long they talk for. Um, a, a breach in good faith bargaining often occurs when employers um, uh, refuse to move the needle in any kind of way, refuse to put on the table uh, any kind of demands that speak to what working people are asking for, or put on the table demands that are, re that are retrogressive, that, that, that move things backwards after they've first moved things forward, or um, simply being unresponsive uh, in a meaningful way to what the union puts on the bargaining table. And it's a very fact-specific inquiry, um, and uh, oftentimes you just have people who are at loggerheads, and it may not uh, rise to the level of being some kind of unfair labor practice, but it's just um, employer intransience um, and employer greed um, and a refusal to uh, buy into a vision that workers should share in the billions in profits that are being made by um, big entertainment, by big auto, um, by companies like Tesla, by uh, big tech like Google and Microsoft and Amazon. Yeah, the duty of good faith bargaining does not require either side to make a concession ever. And Harris points out one thing it does do is it prevents regressive bargaining, and that is you can't order or for a dollar an hour more today and 75 cents an hour more tomorrow and 50 cents the next day because the other, the other side is not – the union is not conceding. So 
that is part of the duty of good faith bargaining. But beyond that, there's no requirement to, to concede anything. And, and if you should win, the union should win a labor law complaint, as Harris knows from his time on the CERB, if, if the union were to win the, the complaint that the employer is not engaged in good faith bargaining, they, what they do, they win. They win a piece of paper that says employer engage in good faith bargaining. It's, it, so it's toothless. I, I want to go back, if we could, um, and conclude with this, uh, Harris Freeman. The article in today's New York Times, for Tesla and Musk, auto strike carries benefits and risks. And what the article says, having reviewed a number of the facts and circumstances that we've re reviewed on the show today, is that the UAW has failed to unionize Tesla, but it has Tesla in its sights again. Is this important in the overall picture of the strike at the moment against GM, Ford, and Stellantis? I think it's really important. And, and the fact that the UAW is saying they have Tesla in its sights reflects what the UAW members did when they elected Sean Fain as its president recently, the first time that UAW members have directly elected a president in the history of the UAW, it's reflecting more rank-and-file control and input and um, desire to change the terms and conditions of work. I, I think Tesla workers, just like workers at the unorganized VW factory in Chattanooga or the various other uh, auto factories in the South, everybody is watching what the UAW is going to be doing at the Big Three. And a victory at the Big Three will, I, I think, pretty obviously, uh, cause Tesla workers to perk up and listen to what the UAW has to say. So to some extent, uh, the UAW's ability to move forward on a campaign of on-the-ground organizing is going to depend on whether they um, can show that their strikes and militancy and solidarity uh, is going to pay off. Well. Professor Harris Freeman, uh, it is just so great to have you on the show. Your expertise is just uh, obvious. Um, I know you've testified before Congress in labor matters, and you are just a uh, real gem to have in this region. Thank you so much for joining us and for explaining a really important series of strikes that are happening Well, here. well th thanks for having me, and, and thanks for making time on your show for this important issue. Be glad to come back and talk about it when we uh, see what comes When we come next. here to celebrate the great union victory soon. Right on. Let's keep our fingers crossed and uh, do what we can to extend support for the auto workers in the UAW. Right. We'll be right back. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The conversation over a new four-way intersection near the old Tasty Top on Route 10 in East Hampton is continuing. The developer who's planning a multi-million dollar housing and retail complex has secured an agreement to buy two lots opposite the project, according to the Gazette, to help control traffic by installing the four-way intersection. 
The planning board will vote on the proposed development after reviewing all data and relevant public comments submitted to date. There has been some opposition to the project by property owners and environmentalists. Frequent passenger rail service between Springfield and Boston is one step closer to becoming a reality thanks to a big chunk of federal funding. The U.S. Department of Transportation is providing $108 million to pay for track improvements along 53 miles of railroad between Springfield and Worcester. Amtrak and the freight rail company CSX will receive the funds as part of the Federal Railroad Administration's Safety Improvement Program. Greenfield Community College has a new program on the way after receiving a grant from the state. They're developing an HVAC training program as part of an $18 million grant from the Massachusetts Clean Energy Center focused on creating an equitable clean energy workforce. And Greenfield Mayor Roxanne Wiedegardner now has the endorsement of Governor Maura Healey and Lieutenant Governor Kim Driscoll in her run for re-election as mayor, one of only a handful of endorsements the administration is making in municipal elections. Lieutenant Governor Driscoll said Mayor Wiedegardner is a critical partner in moving Massachusetts forward as one of the municipal candidates in line with their vision for the state. For today, look for sunshine with increasing clouds this afternoon, high 70 to 74. Tonight, it'll be mostly cloudy, overnight lows 50 to 54. And the outlook for Saturday, rainy, breezy, and cool, highs in the lower 60s. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Adam Stremko on 101.5 WHMP. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. Which says we need to appeal to the wealthy white people of our region because the marginalized people do not have money. Which is true, but as we know, that's what happens when you have centuries of policies that are oppressive, that are racist. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. You love your car. We all do. It's part of our DNA. If your vehicle gets into an accident, the people to turn to are the collision experts at Fort Hill Collision Services in Amherst. Fort Hill lets you leave your concerns at the door. They'll fix your vehicle to better than factory standards and deal with your insurance company from start to finish. Fort Hill is locally owned and operated. They're part of the community and they guarantee the work they do every time. Trust Fort Hill Collision Services, Route 9, Amherst, and online at forthillcs.com. Get on your bike in September with the 13th annual Will Bike for Food, benefiting the Food Bank of Western Mass. This fun cycling event takes place September 24th at the Lions Club Pavilion in Hatfield. Cyclists of all ages and levels can pedal towards a hunger-free future while cycling through the scenic Connecticut River Valley and then celebrating at the exclusive after party. So join a team of friends, family, or coworkers, or ride and fundraise yourself. Register today at willbikeforfood.org. Presented by Stop and Shop. You could be one word away from $1,000. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Listen each weekday for the $1,000 keyword at around 815, 1215, and 415. When you hear the keyword, just go to WHMP.com and enter it for a shot at $1,000. You have until midnight to enter the keyword of the day. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Complete rules and details on WHMP.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We welcome to the show local attorney John DeBartolo, who has his offices in Northampton, East Hampton, and Greenfield. He has been a public spokesperson. Well, I'm not even sure that's quite right, but he has certainly publicly spoken out 
with regard to the Main Street redesign plan. He has expressed his reservations. I spoke with a number of people who said to me that the person they would like to have represent their position with regard to questions and or reservations about the design is Attorney John DeBartolo, and so we are so pleased he could join us today. Attorney DeBartolo, you have in the Gazette publicly in letters and in public statements expressed your reservations about the Main Street design. Tell us what they are. My, thanks for having me first, Bill. Uh, my, my primary concern is regarding the safety of design uh, as being untested in this particular setting. Uh, there are a number of concerns from other people. There's, we have overlapping concerns. It's kind of a disparate group. Um, but my primary concern is the safety of the design. Okay. Tell us more about that. Well, the design calls for uh, both the, the shrinking from uh, two lanes in each direction to being one lane in each direction with a middle turning lane. And it includes... On uh, which roads? On, on, this is Main Street. This is, we're talking about like a four-tenths of a mile stretch of Main Street from like between the Academy of Music and, and the Roost for people who are local. Um, it's a short area. And it calls for adding what they call a protected bicycle lane adjacent to the sidewalk as opposed to adjacent to the lane of travel. And I think that both constricting the traffic and adding that lane in that location is what gives me the most concerns about safety. Okay. Stay there with that for a moment. It, describe for us one of the, one of the, one of the uh, deficits of radio, perhaps, is we can't show people specifically what the design is. But could you describe what Main Street in Northampton will look like with this design if it is approved and constructed? Yeah, on a positive note, it's going to look pretty. Uh, the downsides are they're going to uh, eliminate a lane of travel in each direction. Uh, they'll widen sidewalks, which is fantastic. They'll shorten crosswalks, also fantastic. Uh, there'll be added trees. There's a lot of benefits to it, uh, but the safety concerns relate to shrinking that travel lane and adding that bicycle lane. So the bicycle lane adjacent to the curb will be behind a row of parked cars. Uh, I should also add, they're going to be eliminating, uh, I think, over 50 parking spaces uh, and taking away most of the angled parking. So it'll be parallel parking. There's additional concerns for that for people who are not able-bodied as the angled spaces are, are better for them uh, accessing their vehicles. Uh, but the bicycle lane will be essentially against the curb behind a row of parked cars, reducing the visibility from the When traveling. you say behind, you mean next to a row of parked cars? Yes. So if you're in the traveling, you're, you're a, a motorist, you'd have to your right a row of parked cars. And then after that, next to the curb would be the bicycle lane. Between the parked cars and the curb. And the curb would be the bicycle lane. Yes. Okay. So explain this because there's been a lot of complaining of, well, it's really crucial that people would be able to drive right next to the store they want to go to. And to me, that argument falls short, frankly, because we have a parking garage that gets people really close to a lot of stores in Northampton. And we have like another thousand parking spaces pretty close to downtown or very close to downtown. And I'm wondering whether that the lack of uh, I'm sorry, it's not the lack of, but it is the elimination of some angle, some parking spaces in downtown with this new plan, whether that is a serious objection in your judgment or not. I, I think that cuts both ways. Uh, we also have a dedicated bicycle lane a block away from Main Street that's no farther than the parking garage. So currently, cyclists have a safe way of traversing the city and no longer a walk from the bike path than motorists would have from the parking garage. But there are a lot of people who have mobility issues who do not qualify for handicap placards. Older people, um, parents with small children, 
uh, who want to be in closer proximity to their destinations and making the walk from the parking garage can be burdensome. Well, looking for a space and thinking you're going to actually score a space right in front of the store you ultimately want to go to, that's not a high, high uh, percentage uh, kind of thing. I, I think that it might be higher than you expect in that uh, the parking garage, as you pointed out, has lots of open spaces, I think because people do circle until they find the space they want. So do you think the parking garage is underutilized that way? I mean, can people's behavior change? The parking garage is fabulous. It gets you pretty darn close to where you want to go. And the first hour is free, and it's covered. Yeah, I think it, it covered is, is one thing, but you, you have to travel from that. So whether you know, it does get you when you leave the parking garage. I think it's a great parking garage, and I think it works for many people. It doesn't work for all people, and, and certainly for people who have mobility issues, it's a problem. This is Dan. I have a question for you about the procedure. I've been hearing about this uh, redesign now for several years, and I'm curious to know, were the concerns you're bringing up brought up earlier to the mayor, and were they not incorporated in the outcome of this uh, process that we're now experiencing? That's a good question, Dan, although I think we too often get bogged down in the procedural aspect, and I was hoping to really stay with the substantive part of the discussion. But for, for what it's worth, there have been a number of Zoom meetings, and that's a relatively new phenomenon. They changed the open meeting law during 2021 for COVID, um, but there have been a number of Zoom meetings on it, and there have been a number of people who have concerns about who have voiced those concerns. Uh, it's just not that those concerns have been addressed in any way. Um, so just like any time, if, if you've suffered through public comments at any of the, of the meetings, you know, the lawmakers aren't expected to respond. They sit stoically and people sometimes ramble on. But yeah, there's a number of opinions that have been expressed throughout the process that just haven't been taken into account. And, and just a quick follow-up with that. Do you think there, I remember there being multiple options. Do you think any of the other options would have addressed the concerns that you're bringing up? Absolutely. That's a great point as well. Um, there were four options. Uh, the second option was called Alternative 1B. I don't know why they weren't numbered 124. There are 1AB23. Um, option 1B involved retaining the four lanes of travel, but painting them so that they would be clearly marked. For anyone who's not familiar with downtown Northampton, there's uh, a section right in the middle of this stretch where there's no marked lanes for reasons unknown. Um, it would have made all the safety changes that would have helped pedestrians. It would have widened the sidewalks. It would have added more trees. Um, it would have done everything that this design does except add that dedicated bike lane. Uh, my understanding is that the city does not believe that we could get the federal funding without that bike lane. And I think that's the driver of the design that we're currently seeing as opposed to what best meets the needs of the city. The question that I've had the whole time is, what's the problem that we're trying to solve? Is the problem that we don't have four-tenths of a bike lane between either end of Main Street? We don't have it after that point. We don't have it on Elm Street. We won't have it after you pass the roost. I mean, is that the problem we're trying to solve? I think the problem, from what I can tell from people who support the idea, is about the vibrancy of the city. And I think there's a lot of ways to accomplish that that don't necessarily require adding that bike lane. One of the things that I wanted to address today is... is um, expert opinion. There's been a lot of talk about, well, we're relying on experts as if people with concerns are relying on a shaman or something. There's all kinds of expert opinion. And even the expert opinion on which they rely, I don't know that they've actually read the studies that they're citing. This is just, Dan, just for a, a comment here. Uh, I travel abroad. 
And I've been to uh, cities where they do have a dedicated bike lane, but they create barriers, tiny barriers between the cars and the bike lane. That way you have just one dedicated bike lane, but it's not open uh, between the driver and the bicyclist, as we have here today, where I, I get the sense of what you're telling me, there's no barrier between bikers and um, cars. Yeah, currently. And, and, and it could be made, I mean, it would be more money, but. No, absolutely. And that's, that's a great point. I think a lot of people are relying on that, mm. uh, on what happens in other cities. One of the studies uh, that's been cited by uh, a city council in a newsletter, it, it's, uh, it was originally published in the Journal for Transport and Health. It's called Why Cities with High Bicycling Rates Are Safer for All Road Users. Uh, and it's been relied upon as if it's some kind of gold standard, but it was a study of 12 large U.S. cities from Minneapolis to Chicago with populations ranging from over 400,000 to over 2.7 million, significantly larger cities. And that population density was a factor. So in the conclusion, the authors were clear. They said, Quote, at this point, the results should not be considered generalizable to other countries or smaller cities. So when you have these bike lanes in places where uh, they don't have a bike trail a block away from downtown or their downtowns are much more geographically larger and much more congested than ours, and they're trying to protect fatalities, then that type of bike lane is going to be a benefit. It's like saying um, it's safer to drink uh, sugary soda. Well, if your water supply is tainted, it's absolutely safer to drink sugary soda. But if you have a clean water supply, that, that doesn't really apply. We're speaking with Attorney John DeBartolo, who has expressed reservations and concerns with regard to the Northampton downtown redesign. And we're going to continue this conversation right after this. Right after this. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Rutabagas, sweet potatoes, turnips, and leeks. Local produce is rooting its way to the co-op every day. At the co-op meat counter, try coffee-rubbed hanger steak, a delicious mix of sweet and bold heat. New recipe and you need just a pinch of this herb or that spice? Get just the right amount in the co-op's bulk department. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Hi, I'm Jane Wolf, Executive Vice President of Residential Lending, asking you to come on over to the co-op. It just makes sense. And dollars, Jane. I'm Angie McClay, Residential Loan Underwriter, and we want you to know we've extended our mortgage promo, so there's more time to save on your mortgage closing costs. That's right. There's still time to save up to $1,250 when you obtain a pre-approval from GCB. We make it easy to apply online at bestlocalbank.com or at any of our branch locations. Our local, experienced mortgage team is happy to help walk you through the process and answer any questions you may have. So apply online or come see us in person and receive a $750 closing cost credit plus an additional $500 when we pre-approve you. Close by November 30th, be a new first mortgage customer or refinance from another loan provider. Minimum $100,000 loan, subject to change or end without notice. Other conditions apply. See bank for details. Greenfield Cooperative Bank is an equal housing lender, member FDIC, member DIF. You can count on your friends at the co-op. You have a tree to prune? Rent a boom lift, a pole saw, a chipper, a log splitter, stump grinder, and to clean up, a mini loader. Whatever the job, chances are TJ's rents the tools and equipment to make it easier, safer, and cheaper. What projects do you want to tackle? Rent the right tools and equipment at TJ's. We'll show you how to use them. You'll get the hang of it in no time. TJ's Rental, Route 202 in South Hadley. 
Give us a call and fill up your propane tank while you're here. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. As a non-Northampton resident, uh, it is obvious to me and to, well, most of my friends who don't live in Northampton, Northampton is a really important part of the lifestyle here in Western Massachusetts for those of us here in the Hilltowns. And we're talking about the redesign of Main Street with attorney John DeBartolo. And you had a question for John, uh, Dan. I have a lot of questions. Uh, Former Northampton Mayor uh, David Narkowitz did a redesign in Northampton. And then I guess the redesign got undone. And I wanted you to discuss that um, with us. Um, Was there any progress that you see in that? How could that apply today? Thanks, Dan. I appreciate the question. Um, I mean, my primary goal right now would be to get the city to do a trial run of the currently proposed design. Uh, you know, the federal money that's available, the opportunity, this infrastructure that has to be done, this is a great opportunity for the city to make some changes. So it's not like the people who are signing the petition, it's not like I am saying, oh, leave everything as it is. It's more like, let's test the thing that you have. And that's really what the experts recommend. Um, so there are currently trial runs going on in Austin, Texas, Athens, Georgia, Warsaw, Indiana, Longmont, Colorado, Bay Area, California, Providence, Rhode Island, to name a few. Uh, a trial run is the best way to test it. So to, to your specific point about the August 2020 attempt, um, I, I don't want to disparage that attempt, um, but it wasn't as uh, detailed as an attempt should be. In, in speaking with people who support uh, the current design, uh, in their effort to say, well, it's not practical to do a trial run, you know, I'm told that what's required is traffic signal changing, uh, changing the parking limits with, with the Park Mobile, the painting of, of uh, loading and disabled areas, uh, clear signage, adding lines, and potentially those temporary bollards that you spoke about, these kind of vertical uh, marks. But it's been done in other cities. It's something that's done. I think they did learn something from 2020. Um, the 2020 version uh, didn't have the bike lane where this version has it, which is part of my concern. So I think it's going to be less safe in its currently proposed state. But they didn't have that middle turning lane. And I think they recognized uh, that that was a problem for emergency vehicles. So there was a benefit to them doing that that trial run that they seem to have addressed here. But I think they may have added an additional problem. Um, and the specific problems that I see with that bike lane are uh, it's difficult for vehicles to see uh, a cyclist coming from behind their right shoulder going to take a right turn. In the places that you mentioned overseas or in, say, New York City on 3rd Avenue, when you have one of these dedicated bike lanes that's separate, you also have traffic controls at every intersection. Here we've got six side streets, three on either side, that are uncontrolled. So vehicles are going to be taking rights onto those streets. Vehicles are going to be pulling out of those streets to enter and having to cross that bike lane to see around the parked cars. Those are additional contact points. And uh, the Federal Highway Administration that, again, proponents rely on often, they have a, a guide online under their uh, bicycle and pedestrian program called Separated Bike Lane Planning and Design Guide. Uh, in Chapter 3, Why Choose Separated Bike Lanes, they note that, however, while cyclists may perceive that separated bike lanes provide increased safety, it has been difficult to identify conclusive safety trends due to a lack of data, especially bicycle volume data, before separated bike lane installation. But they go on to point out uh, that they did an analysis of of 17 separated bike lane corridors in eight states and noted an increase in total bicycle crashes. That's an increase from adding the lanes. Moreover, uh, they say the analysis found 
that increases in bicycle crashes after separated bike lanes were built were especially pronounced at intersections. So if the Federal Highway Administration is saying this, it's because it's a real thing. It's not just my opinion. The opinion of people have some concerns. And if you're, again, going back to my, my soda versus water example, if you have a really dense city population where you have fatalities on bicycles, having more total crashes that don't result in fatalities is a good thing. But having more crashes for a place like Northampton, where we don't have those traffic lights at the intersections, where we have a much smaller population. But, but we also have a high risk of number of people in accidents in downtown, too. That's one, that's one of the reasons why they're focusing on this project. Go ahead, Newman. Yeah, I mean, I mean we, we can, and I think we'll have a, just simply have a debate on the show one day about which, which is sa safer, because there is simply disagreement about that. And I would like to ask you this really direct question, if I could, since you focused a lot, John DeBartolo, on the question of bicycle lanes. If the bicycle lanes weren't one in each direction. If this were, if they were, that was not part of this plan. Would you support the plan? I would. Okay, so I can't speak for anyone else, but but I would. And but I don't think you know. I'm not asking the city to strike the bike lanes. I'm asking that city councilors uh, authorize funding to do a trial run so they can test it. Maybe it works great. I mean, maybe the narrowing of the lanes will work great. There are places where they've narrowed lanes and they don't have a problem. But then again, we also have places, look at the Coolidge Bridge, where adding more lanes is what helps with the volume of traffic. So there was supposed to be a traffic study done of what the impact would be to the side streets. I don't know if it wasn't done or if it just wasn't released, but I haven't seen any of that data. And I would like to turn to one other aspect of this. Does the plan sufficiently or, or at least attempt to sufficiently mitigate the disruption to downtown and the businesses during the construction phase? That's a great question, Bill. And, and, and I'm going to be straight up. A lot of people have that concern who are on this side of it. Um, there's been some uh, talk that there could be some funding for that, but nothing concrete, nothing that's involved communications with the business community uh, and nothing approaching the level of a commitment. But I mean, we're talking about over $2 million paid to the design company the last million came from, from COVID relief funds. I would love to see some part of the COVID relief funds go to help those businesses that are going to suffer. And I should just say, full disclosure, my business isn't going to suffer from this. In fact, you know, sadly, my business could pick up. John DeBartolo was referring to the fact that he is a personal injury lawyer. So for those, for those of our listeners who didn't, <laughs> weren't, weren't, in on, weren't in on that. So, John, let me ask you, in your judgment, what should happen next and as part of that answer, if you could, how much would it cost the city to try to have this experiment or this run-through? It would be pricey. Um, I heard an estimate of around a million, but I don't know if that's accurate. I would love to see the city cost it out. Um, it, would, it would probably be more than what was spent in the 2020 version because um, that version wasn't particularly well done. And, and I know we're short on time. Uh, if that version were better done, I think the city would be less resistant to it this time, and they're a little concerned because that didn't work out like they'd hoped. Mm. John DeBartolo, thank you so much for joining us. Your thoughts are really interesting and really provocative and informing. Um, for everybody else, it's the last full day of summer. Foliage is among us, the things that we're going to be looking at, and thank you so much for joining us on Talk the Talk. Remember, walk the walk. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. Power to the people. Tag, you're it. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. 
Tom Hartman program, your home for the resistance, commentary, conversation, and common cause. Join me, Tom Hartman, every weekday from noon to 3 right here on WHMP. 1015 and 1400 WHMP. WHMP is looking for organizations that regularly distribute information about employment opportunities to job applicants or have job applicants to refer. If your organization would like to receive notification of job vacancies at our station, please notify us at Careers, WHMP Radio, 15 Hampton Avenue, Northampton, Massachusetts, 01060, phone number 413-586-7400, or email jobs at whmp.com. Saga Communications is an equal opportunity employer and encourages minorities and females to apply. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls. WHMP.com on Northampton Radio Group Station. It's 11 o'clock.